Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hello and welcome back to Behind the Knife. We're the hepatopancreato biliary team and we're excited to bring you another HPV dedicated episode. So for today's episode, we're going to be discussing an important paper from the field of HPV. This paper comes out of the Annals of Surgery. Um, this is a paper published in September of 2020. The first author, Sai Ahmad, will be our guest for a later part of the podcast. This article discussed the SWOG S. 1505 trial, which examined the efficacy of perioperative therapy for resectable pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Uh, there was a, another paper also published, this one in um, JAMA Oncology, which will come up, come up throughout the conversation as well. And that the first author for that was Dr. Sohal, and that was published again in JAMA Oncology in March of 2021. So first, we'll review the basics of the trial itself. And then in the second half, you would mention we'll talk to Dr. Ahmad and hear what his impression of the trial results were. For our listeners, if you enjoy hearing from Dr. Ahmad and other giants of HPV surgery, we would also encourage you to check out the HPBA podcast as well, where you can hear Dr. Vreeland, as well as one of his colleagues, Dr. Newhook, interview other giants within the world of HPV surgery. But for now, Connor, uh, can you set the stage for uh, this trial by giving us a brief history of chemotherapy for pancreatic cancer up to this point? Definitely. So we know that treatment of pancreatic cancer includes multimodal therapy, uh, including both surgery and chemotherapy. So a series of trials have demonstrated that adjuvant multi-agent chemotherapy regimens such as gemcitabine plus capecitabine uh, or fulfirinox results in improved overall and disease-free survival compared to single-agent gemcitabine. And gemabraxane is also commonly used, uh, although a statistically improved survival has not been demonstrated over gemcitabine alone. And as a reminder uh, for the residents, the fulfirinox regimen includes 5-FU, irinotecan, and oxaliplatin, uh, whereas gemabraxane includes gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel. Right. So like Connor said, now we know that multi-agent chemotherapy is ideal. And as we know, traditionally, the approach to resectable pancreatic cancer included surgical resection up front, followed by adjuvant therapy. But we also know that the Whipple is a highly morbid operation with a high risk of complications and a pretty long recovery period. So a surgery first approach inherently means that many patients may never make it to chemotherapy. And in some uh, studies, that can be up to 50% of patients. So while we know that pancreatic cancer is a systemic disease, these patients uh, may not even benefit from receiving surgery at all if they never make it to chemotherapy. Yeah, I agree. Well said. And I, I think, you know, just boiling down to the two chemos that they used here, just a quick word about sort of where those came from. So we talked about fulfirinox gemabraxane. So the big adjuvant study for fulfirinox was called the Protege 24 study and disease-free survival was 21.6 months versus 12.8 months uh, favoring fulfirinox, obviously. And then the, in, for gemabraxane, the study was called APACT, A-P-A-C-T, uh, and the disease-free survival there was about 16.6 versus 13.7. So again, just I know I'm talking through a lot of numbers here, but the, in the adjuvant setting, it looked like fulfirinox was about five months better than gemabraxane. So 
you know, I think the field as a whole going into this trial assumed that the Fulfirinox arm was going to do a lot better, but they had never been compared head to head. So this trial, although it's small and it's only a phase two, was a really important step in randomizing patients to Fulfirinox versus Gemabraxane. Great. So now we'll dig into the SWOG-1505 trial itself. So it's a randomized multi-center phase two trial, and it compares perioperative chemotherapy for resectable pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Resectable disease, they defined using cross-sectional imaging, and that was obtained within 28 days of registration for the trial. That included CT or MRI of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Resectable disease meant that the tumor couldn't interface with the celiac, common hepatic, or superior mesenteric arteries or their variants and that there is less than 180 degrees of venous interface with the portal or superior mesenteric veins, and that the portal splenic vein confluence had to be patent. And of course, there could be no metastatic disease. Um, And Connor, can you talk about the other inclusion criteria that they used? Sure. And just to take a step back and talk a little bit about how patients move through the trial. So after meeting radiologic resectability, the criteria that Lexi just talked about, uh, patients had to see a surgeon within 21 days of trial registration to confirm resectability. Uh, Besides resectability, other important inclusion criteria included a histologic diagnosis of pancreatic adenocarcinoma, measurable disease on imaging as defined by resist criteria, they had to have no prior therapy, and a a Zubrod performance score of zero or one. They also had to have normal labs uh, representing their bone marrow, liver, and kidney function. Right. So these were otherwise pretty functional, healthy patients besides pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Uh, Dr. Vreeland, can you explain their process of determining radiologic resectability? Yeah, this is an interesting point to this study. Um, just one quick mention on the, the stuff that you guys talked about, inclusion, exclusion. The one thing that, that, they, that they did not include was a CA99 number. So we'll talk to Dr. Ahmed about uh, why that was and why that wasn't included. But I think that's an interesting nuance here. But getting back to radiologic, uh, the radiologic issue. So the first thing that would happen for these patients is they see somebody at whatever center they're at, and then the treating physicians there say, oh, we should enroll this patient on the trial. And they then kind of look at the scan and say, is this a resectable tumor or is it not? But that wasn't the end. So then it went to a central review where a blinded radiologist, not at the treatment center, would go through the scan and look for six radiologic inclusion criteria. So, you know, the interesting thing we'll get into in the results is that they had a dropout rate, right? So you have patients that you think are going to enroll and then you send them to the central review and some amount of patients are going to drop out. Um, and then they had to, they had a change in their protocol after an initial interim analysis where now they were actually telling the centers, Hey, you know, they were, they were basically gave those criteria to the centers and said, please look a little closer at these criteria before you enroll a patient in the trial, because we're having a higher than expected dropout rate. Right. And as we discussed before, determining resectability was is not a straightforward process, and there is such a degree of subjectivity. But once these patients were then deemed resectable, uh, Dr. Nelson, can you tell us which therapy they were randomized to receive? Yeah. So uh, once enrolled, patients were randomized to receive three months of uh, essentially perioperative therapy. So neoadjuvant therapy of either uh, modified fulfirinox or the gemcitabine and braxine uh, with stratification for performance scores of zero to one. And then after three months, they underwent repeat imaging. And if there was no disease progression by rhesus criteria, they 
uh, subsequently underwent surgical resection. And then within, um, uh, and that was in within four to eight weeks of completing neoadjuvant therapy. And then after surgery, they resumed adjuvant therapy, the same one that they had been allocated to, um, within, uh, uh, the maximum timeframe was 12 weeks post-resection. Right. And ultimately the primary outcome was overall survival. Uh, some of the secondary outcomes that they included was, were overall resection rate, R0 resection rate, pathologic response rates, toxicity, disease recurrence, as measured by cross-sectional imaging that they obtained every three months, and post-operative complications. Other results they collected included lymph node status, reasons for protocol deviation, and surgical training. Uh, Connor, can you go through the enrollment of patients into the study and then their progression to surgery? Sure. So the trial enrolled patients from October 2015 to April 2018, accruing a total of 147 patients. However, as Dr. Breland was mentioning, mostly due to the central radiology review, uh, 44 patients, uh, which is 30%, were deemed non-resectable. And so then of these 103 eligible patients, 75% of them reached surgery. Of the 25 that did not reach surgery, uh, nine progressed on therapy Nine had toxicity related to neoadjuvant therapy, and four didn't uh, reach surgery for other miscellaneous reasons. In each treatment arm, uh, comparable numbers started and completed neoadjuvant therapy, including 84% of the fulfirinox arm and 85% of the gemabraxane arm. And of the 77 patients who did reach surgery, 95% of them underwent resection, uh, with four of the, the the other four of those patients undergoing exploration with uh, discovery of occult metastatic disease. Right. So ultimately, three quarters of patients who received neoadjuvant therapy successfully reached surgery. So Dr. Breland, can you go over the details of the surgeries that they received? And then uh, maybe Dr. Nelson can cover the pathologic outcomes. Yeah. So some kind of interesting aspects here. So 45% of cases were done by general surgeons. So that I think is sort of a myth in the world of surgical oncologists that we think only surgical oncologists do Whipples. But, um, you know, this trial was, I think, true to what happens in the community is that about half of Whipples are actually done by general surgeons that, um, you know, either have trained before surgical oncology was an official fellowship or, you know, just people that did enough of them in residency that they feel comfortable doing that. Um, and then 7% were trained by people who did HPB fellowships. Uh, and then about half the operations were a standard Whipple, while 30% were pylorus preserving. And then there were some patients who were not head of the pancreas. Uh, so either had a distal pancreas and then two total pancreatectomies. Uh, and then interestingly, 44% of the operations documented a periaventitial dissection. So in our last episode, we talked very specifically about that periaventitial dissection along the right right lateral 100, 180 degrees of the SMA as being kind of the, what I would consider now the standard way to do a Whipple. You know, one other really interesting number is that despite the fact that we talked about only one patient had a radiographic interface with a vessel, 30% required a vascular resection. And this was after neoadjuvant. So again, I, I think we touched on this on the last podcast, but the, the scan can be a little deceiving, particularly up front. So you're up front imaging may, may make you think that it's resectable, but 
very often there's that little bit of infiltration near the vein. And then when you get in the operating room, the tumor stuck to the vein, despite what is called a resectable tumor on imaging. So I thought that was very interesting that even after uh, a few months of neoadjuvant, uh, almost a third of patients required a vascular resection reconstruction in the setting of what we all called quote, resectable disease. Yeah, and for any residents uh, that don't know what that periadventitial dissection of the right lateral wall, the SMA is, uh, Tim has a fantastic video on the American College of Surgeons Cancer Surgery Standards Program uh, website that walks you through it. It's beautiful. Um, Lexi, you asked me about the pathologic outcome. So regarding those, 85% of patients undergoing resection had an R0 resection. Um, a median number of 18 nodes were harvested and 42% were node negative. So pretty impressive there. Uh, major pathologic response of grade zero or one, meaning no residual tumor or minimal residual tumor, uh, was found in a third of patients. Um, and uh, regarding their ability to start uh, therapy after surgery, 78% of patients started postoperative adjuvant therapy and 63% were able to complete it. So ultimately, neither treatment arm's two-year overall survival was statistically higher than their pre-specified threshold of 40%. For the Fulfirinox arm, the estimated two-year overall survival was 47%, but that p-value was insignificant at 0.15. And for gemabraxine, the survival was 48%, but that p-value was 0.14. Median overall survival was respectively 23.2 and 23.6 months for each of those arms. And there was no difference between the arms and overall response rate, R0 resection, no negative resection, or disease-free survival. However, there are some important takeaways from this trial, even if the overall survival was not statistically improved. Um, Connor, what were some of your impressions of this trial? Sure. Uh, so first, the determination of resectable pancreatic cancer, uh, as we discussed, was inconsistent among local centers. Uh, compared with central radiology reviews um, and presumably inconsistent between some of these local centers as well uh, with nearly a third of enrolled patients deemed ultimately ineligible with the central review or, or unresectable rather. Right. And another important lesson from this trial is that patients can acceptably tolerate these multi-agent regimens in a perioperative setting and they can do so without prohibitive complications or toxicity and that their outcomes um, were similar between the, the two regimens of fulfirinox and gemabraxane. Uh, about a third of the patients had a major pathologic response, um, which was also very encouraging. And then also the study demonstrated that um, the difficulty in getting patients to complete a full course of intended therapy um, with only 49% of the fulfirinox and 40% of the gemabraxane patients receiving all intended therapy, um, which was due to a large drop-off of patients completing the adjuvant course after, the, after surgery. Um, and this raises that, the question of a full neoadjuvant approach um, for pancreatic cancer to ensure that patients receive the needed systemic therapy completely upfront prior to their surgery. Right. And this, this remains controversial, right? Um, we've seen the trends of, of patients having difficulty completing adjuvant therapy uh, in many studies. And so it pushes for trying to give all the therapy up front, but you're going to have detractors that say that we've yet to produce a study that shows that survival is benefit with giving upfront uh, chemotherapy um, over upfront surgery. Right. 
And now that we have reviewed the basics of the SWOG 1505 trial itself, we are very excited and honored to welcome one of the co-principal investigators, Dr. Syed Ahmad, to this episode of Behind the Knife. Dr. Ahmad is a professor of surgery and section chief of surgical oncology at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. He's also the director of the UC Pancreatic Disease Center and associate director of the UC Cancer Institute. He also serves as the surgical chair of SWOG, and his research interests include both clinical and basic science, and he has been a co-PI on multiple alliance trials for borderline resectable pancreatic cancer. He's authored an impressive over 150 manuscripts and 20 book chapters, and he serves as the clinical trial committee chair of the HPBA. His training began as a medical student at the University of Maryland, followed by residency at Penn and a surgical oncology fellowship at MD Anderson. We are very grateful that he's taking time out of his busy schedule to share his insights into the SWOG 1505 trial with us here on Behind the Knife. So first, uh, Dr. Ahmad, leading a trial of this size and importance seems very difficult, especially outside of a cooperative group. Can you speak about the process of getting that group together and then tell us what it was like to run this trial, how many changes you had to make along the way, and maybe some of the challenges that you faced? Thank you for that question. So, yeah, I mean, um, you know, this trial is, and others that I've been involved with really is a culmination of probably, you know, two decades of kind of being involved with a cooperative group. So, you know, I thought about this question and, uh, you know, the best way to answer it is when I came out of training, you know, I kind of asked myself like how I wanted to uh, lead my career. And I definitely wanted to, as most of us wanted to make an impact on the field, you know, wanted to move the needle and, uh, you know, all of us as physicians impact people, you know, on a day-to-day basis, we see patients, we help them, we help their family. And that's a, a, a very noble accomplishment. And then there are some people who kind of help people at more of a population level, um, basic science labs that lead to drug discovery or clinical trials that change paradigms that can help people on multiple levels, you know, hundreds and thousands of patients at once. You know, I had a strong basic science background from my surgical training and my fellowship, and and I wanted to incorporate that into um, um, my research efforts as well. Although I didn't want to have a basic science lab, I wanted to interact with basic scientists. So coming out of training, you know, I I got involved with cooperative groups as well as running trials at the institutional level. I was uh, really integrated into cooperative group by the person who recruited me to the University of Cincinnati, that was Andy Lowy, and, and we were a member of the SWAG cooperative group at that time. And all I really did for the first five to 10 years was just go to the meetings, um, listen to the experts, sit in the back of the room, and eventually after a couple of years, I started having enough courage to ask questions and making contributions intellectually speaking. And I um, eventually took um, training courses through SWAG and through other mechanisms to learn more about clinical trials. And eventually was able to open my first cooperative group study about five to seven years out of training. And that was a study that was focused in on um, uh, gastric cancer. And I learned a lot through that process. You know, one was, you know, being able to come up with a concept that was feasible and worthy of asking that would make an impact. Two was um, building consensus and working behind the scenes to um, help open studies, the politics, so to speak. And three was really the feasibility. So that first study was a gastric cancer study where um, one of the things that was built into the 
the treatment schema was really um, mandating laparoscopy and as prior to enrollment. And that study closed because the community was not prepared to do laparoscopy on gastric cancer patients, even though it's standard care now. And it, it, it failed because people weren't enrolling patients on that study. I remember calling people, you know, where the study were, was open and then asking, why aren't you enrolling patients? And that was a common theme. So one thing I learned there was that even though scientifically, you know, that may have been the right um, thing to do for the patient and, and uh, for the study to have a cleaner data that in, in, in reality, you know, that was what sabotaged the study from, from completing and actually getting an, an answer to the questions. So, you know, I learned that, that the study needs to be feasible, that there needs to be a consensus from the leadership and the community that they want that study to be completed and, and, and will accrue and, and complete. So going back to your question, um, you know, one of the things about running the study in the cooperative group mechanism, it's not just on me, it's a team effort. Many people contributed. Um, I certainly am one of a handful of people who, who, who came up with the concept, worked on it uh, for you know, several years, and, and then built consensus behind the scenes, just within SWAG, but also within the other cooperative groups, um, so that they were supported at the task force level and the GI steering committee level that it would finally get approved. And once approved, that the other cooperative groups would then open it and enroll patients as well. So the things I learned is teamwork is always important. It can't be done by one person. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I like about oncology is that multiple people contribute together for a common goal um, at a patient level and a research level as well. And that's reflected in the cooperative group, multiple people contributing. Two is politics. You know, it, it, you have to get the right people to kind of to support the study for them to then uh, get other, uh, bring on other people who will then support the study to have the study open, you know, at the, at the task force and steering committee level. Um, and, um, you know, patience and persistence. Um, those are always two characteristics that a clinical trials needs because these things take years. You know, you can go to a lab and you can spend a couple of weeks and you get some, you know, Western blots or Northern blots where clinical trials, it takes time, takes patience and takes persistence. There are lots of failures, um, lots of ups and downs. There's many other studies that are proposed and, you know, got shot down. But, you know, if you believe in something, you, you know, you stay persistent and, and you build a consensus um, and, and you go through the, the process of trying to get it open. You just as an anecdote around around this trial, can you give the listeners an idea of how long this took to go from inception to the first enrolled patient and kind of what evolutions yeah. it had to go through to get there? Yeah, so this study actually was, you know, I always like to say was fast track. Um, there are other studies I've been involved with, like, for example, um, Matt Katz, uh, initial borderline resectable 0211 study, you know, we, Matt and I worked on that study together and that whole process was about four years long from when we were in a, a line at Starbucks at SSO, we came up with a concept and we then went and developed a, a team and the team changed multiple times. Um, the concept changed multiple times, but from when we were in that line at Starbucks and when we finally opened the study, that was a four to five year process. This study on the other hand, 
was much more fast track because there was nothing else in queue at this time. You know, pancreas cancer, unfortunately, is a disease where where we haven't had a lot of new drugs. We haven't had a lot of new advancements. And so it was just kind of stuck, you know, um, and, you know, I always like to say when you don't have a drug, you don't have a target, you don't have an actual mutation, you start changing sequences and using drugs and using them in different orders. Um, and so pancreas cancer kind of suffered from there. Now, luckily, you know, we came up with this concept, Devendra Sohal, who was the co-PI and I, uh, Devendra was at Cleveland Clinic at that time. Um, subsequently, I've recruited him to Cincinnati, so he's here with me. But we came up with this concept based on just the data on the advanced setting, um, you know, in, in terms of using uh, fulfirinox in the, ad, in the uh, metastatic setting and gemabraxin in the metastatic setting. You know, the APAC study and the Pradesh study that looked at in the adjunct setting weren't yet um, completed or even uh, open. And so we came up with this concept of, you know, we have these two regimens that have been used in metastatic setting. You know, can we use them in the in the um, uh, adjuvant setting, um, patients who are resectable. And because there's nothing available in Q at the national level, when we proposed this at SWAG, um, it fast-tracked through SWAG, it fast-tracked through the Pancreas Task Force and GI Steering Committee, and boom, it was open. So all that happened roughly less than two years, which is wow, like yeah. a sprint. It's like a 100-yard yeah. dash in, in clinical trials. Yeah. Full full disclosure, we're we're kind of a biased team here for the neoadjuvant approach. But how did we go from you know tumor board discussions where clearly the standard of care is upfront surgery and adjuvant you know multi agent chemotherapy to comparing two perioperative regimens in this trial? You know versus a versus a neoadjuvant versus adjuvant trial. Yeah, I think what we did was really mimic what was really going on in the community. You know, even at that time, even though there was no data for fulfirinox and adjuvant setting, people were using fulfirinox and adjuvant setting. Even though there was no data to support gem, gem NAPAC, or Taxol in the adjuvant setting, the community oncologists were using them in the adjuvant setting. And for those of us who believed in the neoadjuvant approach, um, you know, we felt that those active agents could be utilized in the new adjuvant approach. The problem was that the, the concern with these multi-agent regimen was always toxicity. And the concern was that if we delivered all of these therapies up front, that um, we would not be able to co- complete the study because surgeons would be very leery about trying to do a, a pancreatectomy after total new adjuvant therapy. And so as a compromise, we said, why don't we give some of it up front and some of it afterwards? That way, patients, you know, we can go to the surgeon and say, we're getting the benefit of new adjuvant. We're, we're treating occult metastatic disease as early as possible. We're testing biology, but we're not giving, giving so much that patients get debilitated and have toxicity-related complications that prevent them from getting surgery. So the perioperative format was really designed as a compromise to give new adjuvant, but not all of it up front, um, so that we'd get, again, feasibility about getting the study accomplished. So if we open the study with total new adjuvant, you know, it would get sabotaged before we even open it because there wouldn't be buy-in. So, you know, these, these are the decision-making and going to clinical trials to build um, acceptance from the community that, yes, I'm willing to enroll a patient into the study. So that's where the concept came from. And I think I think certainly others have learned that lesson in the world of uh, of pancreas cancer, where trials have opened and not been able to enroll because maybe they were pushing the envelope a little too much. 
That's right. Um, so uh, just another question on design. Can you talk about the pick the winner design and kind of why you guys use that? And then was there a plan if there was a clear winner in this, or, you know, between Gemma Braxane and Fulfernox to then compare that to adjuvant or something like that? Was there, you know, kind of more to this trial if there had been a clear winner uh, in the first part? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's a little nuanced. And again, you know, when I, when I was talking about team approach, you know, one of the most important members of our team are biostatisticians who help us with trial design and statistics. So pick the winner design is a type of adaptive um, uh, clinical trial um, um, design where a clear um, standard of care does not exist. Um, it's utilized in a usually use, utilized in a phase two setting. Um, and one of the nice things about the pick the winner design is that it allows you to um, answer the question, but limit sample size. So, you know, when, when there isn't a clear standard, so what's the standard for perioperative therapy? We don't have one. So, you know, what's the control arm going to be? Um, so in, in that setting, when you have two different therapies where there's no real standard, that's when you can use the pick the winner. And it's usually you, the, each arm is compared to historical control. So for this study, we use a two-year survival of 40%. And then we had built in the sample size that if a certain threshold was met, then the study would have power to be compared one-to-one. One, one um, you know, but the, the problem was neither arm met that threshold, so they couldn't be compared to one another. So they had to be compared to standard of care, um, which was a, a two-year uh, survival of, of 40%. Um, but pick the winners is, is an adapter trial design utilized in phase two settings that allows you to um, uh, limit sample size and have adequate power. Um, and, um, you know, it's something that's being used more and more. So, for example, the Alliance 0215 study looking at borderline resectable with or without SBRT also utilized a pick the winner design. Um, and, you know, you, you'll start seeing these kind of um, novel um, um, study designs uh, to, to speed along the process of clinical trials. One of the frustrations people have is that uh, clinical trials take a long time and waste a lot of resources. We're currently designing the successor of the 1505 study, and it's using an adaptive trial design where we have multiple arms with novel endpoints, but the study is designed in a way where arms can be closed uh, quickly when we know there's no signal. In other words, we don't have to waste enrolling 100 patients on that study when we know early on that there's no signal. So we can then open additional arms. So we have lots of different arms with lots of different drugs, and we can close and open arms quickly when we find there's no signal. That, that's the future. You know, that's going to be how most clinical trials are performed in the future because you know, we want to answer questions quickly. We don't want to waste resources and we don't want to waste, you know, enroll patients on, on a, a therapy we know isn't working. And so for the patient's benefit as well. For, for a, a young surgeon who's interested in, in this kind of stuff, um, do you recommend, like, again, you said you did some courses through the SWOG, you know, some people are getting master's in clinical investigation. Do you, do you have a recommendation there for somebody who's maybe a senior resident or something like that? And, and is very yeah. interested in this stuff. Absolutely. So I definitely think that um, you know, we don't get this training in, uh, most of us don't in our residencies, you know, some of us get basic science training. Some of us, you know, will get an MPH, for example, during two years of, of dedicated research time, but real, you know, nitty gritty 
trial designs uh, from the cooperative group mechanism or institutional um, um, studies, most don't have experience. So I, I think first and foremost, you know, you have to um, be passionate about it because it takes time, it takes effort and commitment. The second thing I would say is mentorship. You know, I think find mentors and those mentors don't necessarily have to be at your institution. And, you know, you can reach out to people, introduce yourselves, meet them in meetings and talk to them. We, as you know, uh, Tim, we have a mechanism within the AHPBA um, for new faculty um, who are interested in clinical trials. And we, we um, have courses that we're designing for them and we're integrating them into cooperative groups and teaching them how cooperative groups work. And then I do think that taking um, courses, whether it's at a graduate school formally in a classroom versus, you know, dedicated time um, away from the institution is extraordinarily helpful um, to, to learn strategy, statistics, design. Um, you know, I think the more you know, the better you're going to be, the more you'll be able to contribute. Um, and, um, you know, I, I also think it, for a new um, surgeon who's interested in clinical trials, the cooperative group, the NCTN network, is a fertile ground where there are lots of people who want to help you. Um, historically, the cooperative groups were very heavy with regards to medical oncology and radiation oncology. More recently, of the last decade, um, surgeons are open with welcome arms. Their, you know, their input is valued um, with regards to feasibility, design, and most uh, cooperative groups have surgical committees and when studies are open at a disease site level, almost all of them that have a surgical endpoint or uh, component will have a surgical champion. And so part one of <clears throat> learning how to do this is showing up, going to the meetings, meeting people, listening, learning, and then eventually integrating and becoming part of the process. Awesome. Thank you for those great insights. Um, when we went through the details of the trial um, previously, we had a few questions about the inclusion criteria. One that came up was regarding CA-199 levels and whether that was incorporated into inclusion and exclusion criteria, um, as well as genetic testing and whether um, bracket testing or PALB2 mutations were factored into inclusion and exclusion. Those are very important questions. Um, the, the one thing I'll, you know, I, I'll point out is that um, we didn't have specific inclusion criteria with regards to CA-199. Now, if, if you look at the data from the recently completed um, Pradesh study looking at adjuvant propharinox, you'll see survival that are extraordinary in, in terms of disease-free survival, which was a primary endpoint, and median overall survival. But you have to remember, those are highly selected patients. Those are patients that went to surgery, were found not to have occult metastatic disease, underwent resection, recovered from surgery, had good performance status, and then were checked again to make sure they didn't have elevated C99 levels. So if you think about it, those are the best of the best patients that were enrolled in that study. So you would expect that the survival for those patients will be high, and they are, but they're not reflective of the real world. The SWOG 15 of 5 study is much more reflective of the real world. When we see patients in clinic, you know, as a medical oncologist, they're not saying, you know, we're not going to give you full fairnox because your CA-99 is too high. They're going to give it to everybody. And so 
we enrolled all comers um, in terms of biology, in terms of performance status, and you know they weren't pre-selected. So I think the inclusion uh, exclusion criteria was very different than these recently completed adjuvant studies, um, and believe we believe that our results are much more reflective of the real world because you know everyone was enrolled in the study, regardless of the performance status, ability to tolerate surgery, or C199 level. We didn't check BRCA1 or PAWB2 DNA uh, repair genes in this study. Um, certainly, the the um, we know that patients that have BRCA positivity are more likely to respond to platinum drugs. Um, and um, we know that um, the current um, um, Apollo study that's ongoing is looking at the use of, of PARP inhibitors in patients who are who are BRCA or, or PAWB2 positive. So we'll have, have the results of whether that's beneficial. But it would be an interesting thing to go retrospectively look back and, and see whether um, of the of the patients who who were able to get uh, the full Fernox, you know, what percent of them had a BRCA? Was there a difference in outcome in those patients? The the problem I think will be the sample size. You know, if you if you take you know the the number in the full Fernox arm and you parse it down to um, what we would expect to be about ten percent. Remember, about ten percent of people have germline and uh, somatic mutations in DNA. 10 to 20% in, in DNA uh, repair genes. So if you take, you know, that number from the total sample size of Fulfinox arm, it gets much smaller. So, you know, th that's um, not an endpoint we we were uh, looking at, but certainly it's a great question to ask. So I think, you know, <clears throat> looking at the results and getting into the results, again, we kind of went through a lot of this in the interest. So we don't need to reiterate all the numbers here, but, you know, I was surprised a little bit by the results. And I'm curious if you were too, if you expected Fulfirinox to sort of win, um, you know, based on, again, cross-trial comparison from the metastatic setting and, and even the adjuvant setting, you know, my assumption has always been that Fulfirinox is a little bit better. Um, and while there was no difference here, it almost looks like Gemabraxane did a little better in this trial. Um, and I was a little bit surprised by that. I was just curious what your expectation was going into this and, uh, you know, if you were surprised. Yeah, uh, you know, that was the prevailing viewpoint in the community was that Fulfirinox is a better regimen. And again, you mentioned it, it was based on just a survival from the metastatic setting. Uh, but, you know, we always need to remind ourselves that things don't work that way, that you can't compare studies one-to-one um, -one and assume one's better. And in fact, you asked me whether I was surprised, and the answer is no, I was not surprised, because there were lots of data that uh, we had um, uh, looked at that suggested that the two were equivalent. Um, you know, we had performed a retrospective analysis in the Central Pancreas Consortium, which is a, a consortium of about eight or nine uh, institutions. Um, I think that paper was published in Annals of Surgery, and I think Nipun Merchant uh, was a senior author on that, looking at head-to-head comparison of Fulfirinox and cytobine and and that study suggested they're equivalent. I think Matt Katz also did uh, an analysis at MD Anderson looking at the two uh, arms and also found that that there was no difference in outcomes between the two regimens. So, you know, I, I did not expect um, that Fulfirinox necessarily would be better, but that's why we did the study. We didn't know. Um, and we, you know, we had to kind of look at it. Um, the survival between the two arms were same. Um, right. You know, the toxicity, 
the other thing that, that came up was that most people felt that um, that t- toxicity profile for Fernox was much higher than gemcitabine or Braxin. Right. Um, again, based on the stage four setting um, results. And the other important point of the study was that the toxicity of the gemabraxine was equivalent to the fulfernox arm. So it's mm-hmm. not, you know, you know, again, in the community, it was, he's young, we want to be aggressive, and he can tolerate the toxicity, let's give him fulfernox. And, and we know that that no longer is true. We know that gemabraxine works just as well. Um, and the toxicity is the same. So you have to be skilled, regardless of what therapy you're giving the patient in terms of dose modification adjustments. Um, yes, the response rates were higher in the gemcitabine nab paclitaxel arm, um, which again, even though there was no different survival, has given people um, insight that it's an active regimen. Whether it's better than fulfurinox or not, you know, that's a question that that has, hasn't been answered. And, and, and this study was, you know, was equivalent, but it, it, it gives insight that you're not, you're not, um, hold, withholding anything from the patient by giving them gemcitabine and, and paclitaxel because the response rate reflects activity. And so we, we now know that in terms of survival, it's the same response or better. And, you know, one of the other things that we always heard was that if someone had a borderline resectable tumor and you're trying to shrink them, to make them resectable, that you should give them fulfurinox because response rates are better in fulfurinox. And again, based on the study, that's no longer true. That you know that you can get equivalent, if not better, response from the gemcitabine paclitaxel uh, regimen as well. Yeah. Now, one thing that was not published in either of the papers on this trial is uh, the rate of dose reduction. Have you guys looked at that? I mean, that's one of the curiosities that came to my mind when I saw. Yeah. That that fulfurinox wasn't more toxic and wasn't more effective is well maybe that's because all the patients had a dose reduction and I, and that I think that's very common in practice like it's very rare that a patient makes it through two or three months of fulfurinox without a dose reduction so I'm just curious if those numbers are out there yeah um, again a very important question so you're alluding to a concept called dose density and we know from the metastatic setting in pancreas cancer that dose density is more important than the number of cycles you get. Dose density refers to dose reduction, missed cycles, in aggregate, how much total dose did you get? And um, there certainly were dose reductions in the study. Um, Again, uh, we are currently looking at dose density as a uh, marker of response and survival. That project is being done by Samir Patel um, and um, um, will be published on soon. But yes, there were dose reductions, um, um, and the concept of dose density will will have a paper coming out from 1505 on dose density. Great, yeah, and I, I mean, I think to your point, even if that shows that there was more dose reduction in fulfurinox, this is a real life study, right? I mean, this yeah. is a practical study that shows how it really happens, and so you know, even if that's the case, it it may show that you know, you can get through more gemabraxin, you get more dose density with gemabraxin, maybe that's what will come out of that. But uh, either way, I think it's a very practical study and, and gives us some something to move on in, in, in the clinic. And, and I think it also highlights how um, we need to be nimble in managing our patients, and we need to communicate with our team members. Um, you know, so the, you know, it's really important that the surgeon, the medical oncologist, and if radiation be given, the radiation oncologist, as well as the nurses and all other team members are communicating, you know, on a weekly basis about how patients are doing, how they're tolerating therapy, when surgery should be done, 
And, you know, we, you know, we'll, we'll start out with, you know, a, a concept that we're going to try to get them three months of therapy before surgery, but if they can't tolerate it, they're, they're having some toxicity, then we need to be nimble and say, okay, we need to stop, get surgery and maybe give the additional amount post-surgery. So, you know, the importance of the medical oncologist in being able to manage the multi-agent regimen is as important as the surgeon in terms of the outcome. The other thing that that wasn't we haven't talked about is that there were a subset of patients who did have toxicity related reasons for not getting to surgery. Um, so again, both for fulfirinox and gempactitaxel, you know, so the the regimens themselves, um, uh, you know, did prevent a subset of people based on toxicity from getting the surgery. So again, you know, you can't just give chemotherapy to people like you're following a cookbook menu. You know, it requires a skilled oncologist working with a surgeon and making decisions in real time about how much to give, when to withhold, when to adjust, when to give growth factors, and when to do the surgery. And I mean, I think the other thing that this sort of gives a little credence to is, is potentially switching. You know, if, if you're not doing well on one regimen, you don't have to feel bad about coming off fulfirinox and going to gemabraxane because both are, are having a good effect. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this, the switching concept is actually um, a very hot topic right now on the national level. You know, one of the, one of the um, points that have been emphasized in recent years is the value of CA99 in, in monitoring efficacy of therapy. And there are multiple concepts being designed around the country where we, in, in patients who, who are secretors and do have elevated CA99, where one regimen is given, and if they're responding based on rhesus criteria, as well as biochemical response, um, we'll continue their regimen. And if they are not responding, then they get switched to another regimen to the point where they plateau in terms of decreasing CA99 prior to going to surgery. So we know that decreasing CA99 is associated with better outcomes. Decreasing CA99 is associated with pathologic response. And we know pathologic response is associated with better outcomes. And really, it's kind of a window to the biology of the tumor. And so we're trying to maximize that response prior to surgery and being, again, nimble with what therapy we're giving to get to that, that point of response. And I have, it's a little bit of a sidebar, but I have a question about that. So if you have a patient who gets, you know, three, four months of neoadjuvant and they don't have a good pathologic response, what are you doing in the adjuvant setting? Are you switching therapy or, or sticking with what they got if they have, you know, if they don't have much response on their pathologic specimen? Yeah, that's, that's a, uh, a million dollar question. And I don't have, I don't have the right answer. Um, you know, the problem is that once you've done the surgery and you've taken the tumor out, um, you know, now you have no way to know whether the second regimen is actually going to be um, uh, beneficial because uh, you've lost your markers, you've lost your C99, you've lost your tissue. Um, and so I, I don't know if anyone knows the right answer, whether or not postoperatively switching makes a difference. Um, that needs to be studied. And I'm, and I'm sure there's some retrospective data that, that we could probably look at. But that's why the concept of switching prior to surgery is so important, because yeah. it, it gives you a, a window to know if the second regimen is actually working. Um, and, and then you also have tissue to confirm the response. You know, another one of the big takeaways from this trial was the uh, determination of anatomic resectability. It seemed to be highly variable and somewhat subjective, despite uh, the precautions that you guys took with checklists and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you could comment on those challenges. And also, were you surprised by the, 
30% of patients that, although were determined to be anatomically resectable, ended up needing vascular resections? Yeah, good question. So we use the intergroup definition for resectable. And to remind the audience, that included venous involvement less than 180 degrees. So that was a um, definition that was initially championed by uh, Gary Vettachari at MD Anderson and Matt Katz. And then we kind of modified it a little bit for the Alliance 0211 study um, to standardize things. And that's the definition we use for the SWAC 1505. So that in, you know, ineligibility of, of patients, I, I believe at the, at the initial trial, trial um, when we had an interim analysis, um, 30% of patients were found to be ineligible based on the checklist that we developed. And it highlighted the point that in the community, there is a lack of understanding between the differences between resectable, borderline, and borderline and locally advanced. Um, and e even though we gave checklists, you know, people were enrolling patients that weren't resectable. Most of the uh, ineligible patients were those that had venous involvement more than 180 or arterial involvement less than 180. So really borderline resectable patients were being enrolled on a resectable study. That was due to the fact that um, in within the SWOG um, network, we didn't have the ability to do real-time assessments radiographically. And it highlighted why that's so important. Because of the study, we now have that ability in SWOG. So all future studies will have real-time uh, radiologic assessment um, and for quality control. It highlights the fact why quality control is so important because if you're studying these regimens for resectable patients, those are the patients that you need to be testing. So quality control for, for surgery in clinical trials is highly important. And again, why surgeons are in, in needed in these cooperative groups um, to assure that, that the right things are being looked at. So what happened was that what we did at the at the interim closure for analysis is we increased sample size to accrue more people so that we didn't lose our power. Um, and we started holding um, monthly calls with all the investigators, institutional PIs, to answer questions, educate them. We also mandated that every patient that um, was evaluated for study, you know, had the six checkpoint. Um, evaluated prior to enrollment. Um, and that did help uh, moving forward in terms of decreasing the ineligible patients. The reason that there were patients that did require venous resection uh, was because of, you know, venous involvement was not a contraindication to the study. Less than 180 was still considered resectable. Um, there were a few patients uh, that did require arterial resection. And those are, are you know, people that, um, you know, either weren't resectable or progressed on therapy, although it's not really clear to me, but majority of patients that were enrolled were certainly resectable patients. And the ineligible patients were with were taking off study in terms of analysis. So I think ultimately the question we're all wondering about is if you had a patient, uh, say a 55-year-old who came into your clinic with a resectable pancreatic head cancer, would you do neoadjuvant chemotherapy first? And what regimen would you use? Yeah, so my standard, uh, when possible, is always delivering adjuvant therapy. Um, and certainly we'll find out, you know, there are currently um, several studies ongoing. One in this country, the Alliance 0218 study, which is being um, conducted and championed by Christina Ferroni. 
And there's also a Pradesh study, uh, I believe Pradesh 48, that's looking at new adjuvant versus adjuvant as well. And so there are a couple of studies out there that that will have results for. But right now, you know, um, and you know, I, I think even if those studies show equivalence, um, that doesn't mean new adjuvant therapy is not beneficial. Because if you do an intention to treat, it all comes down to doing the surgery on the right patients and making sure patients get the therapy. So let's take a step back and look at the adjuvant regimen in the SWOG 1505 study. So about 80% of people completed the upfront chemotherapy regimen, and only about 40 to 50% completed all adjuvant therapy after surgery, right? So if we believe that pancreas cancer is a systemic disease, and if we believe that the most important thing to improve long-term survival is systemic therapy, then you have to be able to get the therapy into the patients. And we know right now in the adjuvant settings, that's not happening. You know, that most people in the adjuvant setting in the real world are not completing their adjuvant regimen. They can't tolerate it. So, you know, that's why I think the importance of new adjuvant therapy um, should be, you know, considered in most patients because number one, there'll be a subset of people who will progress on therapy. And those are people who would have progressed within months after surgery if the if you used a surgery first approach. And those are people being spared unnecessary surgery. And two is you're getting them the most important aspect of multimodal therapy, which is systemic therapy before they have surgery, um, when it's occult disease, most when it's most beneficial. So I, I think if, if you actually look at, my personal opinion is a group of patients that have surgery and get all their therapy. And if you look at a group of patients that get all the therapy and then have surgery, that the results will be similar. You know, it all comes down to being able to deliver the surgery, deliver the chemotherapy. The problem is that we know that that the the best way to deliver all the therapy is really upfront, and that's why I think new adjuvant therapy is beneficial. With regards to which chemotherapy to use, you know, I think that based on fifteen of five, I think they're equivalent, and uh, I think it's uh, there's lots of nuances that go into um, determining choice. Certainly, if someone is uh, has a DNA repair mismatch, DNA repair uh, abnormality or a mismatch repair, then they should be considered to get a platinum-based regimen. Other things, you know, we'll be looking in the future. Uh, like, for example, we know that some institutions are using transcriptomic profiling of tumors. Uh, David Tubison's lab in New York, Jen Jen Ye's lab in UNC have classified um, uh pancreas cancer is based on classical or basal subtypes, transcriptomic subtypes. And we know that based on the RNA signals, that classical subtypes are more likely to benefit from um, fulferinox rel re relative to gemabraxine. But, you know, these are kind of the things that we're going to learn about in the next five years and be able to assign people into the right regimen. The, the other thing I, you know, the last point I'll make is in terms of clinical trial design, you know, our old ways are kind of outdated. We need to be much more creative in matching the right drug with the right patient. And so we have to start looking at um, um, different clinical trial designs, umbrella studies and basket studies, you know, where mutate, actual mutations are matched with the right drug. So you could have a clinical trial where any type of cancer, breast cancer, kidney cancer, pancreas cancer are enrolled based on mutations. Um, or, you know, uh, if you look at, um, you know, a pancreas cancer, mutational profiles are um, evaluated. And based on that, 
um, you know, assigned to a specific therapy. So not necessarily actual mutations, but more what we call a mutational landscape. You know, we, there, we all know four mutations that are predominant pancreas cancer, but if you look at the tail of the mutational landscape, you know, there's all these mutations that occur at one, two, three, four, 5% that, you know, when looked at individually are not actionable, but when you look at it as a group, you know, that the mutational landscape can predict what therapy to give. You know, that's how we found out that um, uh, breast cancer with uh, DNA repair genes had a re more response to platinum and were responsive to PARP inhibitors, you know, by looking at mutational landscapes and, and, you know, we've translated that into pancreas cancer as well. And so I think the future for clinical trial needs to be much more innovative to match the drug with the, the patients and mutations. And, 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 and to do that, we need to find more actual mutations. Um, and we're starting to scratch the surface right now in pancreas cancer, but we, you know, we haven't yet found the, the home run just yet, but we will. I'm confident we will. Just as a follow-up real quick, uh, what is it going to take to update, say, national guidelines that say for resectable pancreatic cancer, neoadjuvant therapy could be considered, but should be as part of enrollment in a clinical trial? So when I, I is think, that going to be regular yeah, community practice? I think once we have data, you know, so, you know, I think if, if the 0218 study shows equivalence, you know, then it's going to be um, new adjuvants as good as adjuvant. If there's, if, you know, if new adjuvants better, then that's going to become predominant. Um, the, you know, the real question in pancreas cancer is, does sequencing matter, right? That's what that study is looking at. We know in some cancers, sequencing does matter. Like in rectal cancer, we know that if you give radiation upfront, local recurrence rates are less than if you give it after surgery. So in some cancers, sequencing does matter. And, and these neoadjuvant studies are asking that question, does sequencing matter? Because the drugs are the same, right? The surgery is the same. It's just the sequencing. And so, you know, does sequencing matter? We don't, in, in, you know, people have argued, you know, back and forth, all, you know, all these different arguments, you know, the new adjuvant versus adjuvants like Coke versus Pepsi, Burger King versus McDonald's, you know, <laughs> it's, just, it's, you know, and someone needs to answer it. Um, and, you know, hopefully, you know, these two studies that are ongoing right now will go, go a long ways in answering that question. You know, what, what we really need is to get beyond just the chemotherapy and find something that potentiates right. a benefit and it really kind of makes an impact, uh, uh, in addition to sequencing into yeah. survival, you know, this is the problem that we have when we have cancer where we just don't have something that's better, you know, then we start just moving things around, you know, it's yeah. like rearranging the, the furniture on the deck of the Titanic, you know, yeah. you know, we need to get <laughs> beyond to, sequencing and we need to find better drugs. I try to add weeks to survival right. instead yeah. of uh, right. really making a difference. Yeah. 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 I mean, if you look at like HCC, you know, that, that was, you know, for the longest time we had no drugs in ACC and we just can move things around, you know, bridge therapy, resection, this, you know, and then all of a sudden we started getting some drugs and now, you know, with immune therapy, everything is kind of exploding. And, you know, we need that for pancreas cancer. Yeah. We need to stop rearranging the furniture and actually add, you know, new furniture to the deck. Well said. Well said. Yeah. Great. Well, we can't wait to hear what this next piece of furniture is going to be. Dr. Ahmad, thank you so much for your amazing insights into this trial and your advice for aspiring academic surgeons. It's been such an honor for us to interview you. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.